Now let me talk about how you can propel your career. And I know that, that uh, um, so, so, so all of you want, want, the reason you're here studying in school is because you want to advance your career. So I don't have to convince you the importance of this. But one of the things that can help you is to try the non-traditional things. If you're in the corporate world, be prepared to travel or do whatever you're called upon to learn about the company. Talk to CEOs, and I tell me, to, to, I ask them, how did you go from being an engineer to being a CEO of a ConocoPhillips? How did this happen? And they, they tell me the stories, and all of, all of them, it's, it's they're learning all the different parts of the company, and they, they move their way on up. In, acad in academia, you try something outside your comfort zone. You do things in areas in which you're not trained. You take your expertise, and you move into these other areas. And so this is uh, something that we had worked on at one point. We were making... Uh, we were making these molecules, and it turned out that, that I read this article in, in uh, 1988, which was my first year as an assistant professor, about a switching device that, that looked like this. It was mind-confined, and I called up the guy at IBM. There was no email in those days. So we used to dial on a phone and, and uh, call them up, and, and you said, well, how do you call them? How did you get the phone number? And we, we had something called a, um, a directory. You know, you could, you could dial a directory and somebody would tell you the phone number of IBM and then you'd call IBM and you'd get a real person and there'd be a, you'd ask for a person and they'd give you their extension and they'd connect you. And so I said, have you ever made the molecules? He says, no, no. But I said, I think we could make this. So we made these molecules. And then it was, it, it got all of this press. It was written up in Scientific American. Scientific American had a readership of 25 million at the time. Those were extraordinary numbers. YouTube wasn't in existence. To have millions of, of, of people looking at something was, was really strange. But, but I realized that, that if you made a molecule which was a natural product, which was everybody was doing, you just put it in a freezer, publish a paper, and nobody cared. You make molecules as switching devices, and there's all this press, and everybody really cares. So it's a really big deal now. And uh, so you take something that you learn and you move into another area and it gets all sorts of attention. This is a way to propel your career. Remember what I'm telling you. You learn to write letters with a pen, right? So you write letters by hand and you send them by U.S. mail. And it's thank you notes to colleagues and to acquaintances and keep a record of the letters that you send. So every Saturday when I come in, the first thing I do is I sit down and I write letters to people that I met that week, and I'll try to get a card from them, and I'll, I'll write letters. And i got like five or six cards sitting on my desk, and I'll write five or six letters, and I'll send these things out. And, and, uh, and I'll, I'll just keep a little spreadsheet of people that I've written to and what I was trying to, what the date was on this and, 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 uh, and the things that I said. And, and you, you, you track these for over a period of years, and you make a lot of friends that way. And sometimes I'll be reading an article, and it's just a great paper. I mean, and, and you know when a paper's great, when you look at it and you think, wow, I wish I'd have thought of that. And so I will write to the author of that article and say, I was reading your paper, and it was just a great paper. You say, well, I'll just send them an email. Don't. Send them a handwritten note, because then they will never forget you. And email, e emails come and go. And uh, uh, very important, when you go out on a job interview, you, wanna, you want to get the card of every person that you interview with that day. Every person that you go to, their, you get their card. You get back, you write a handwritten thank you note to everybody. Handwritten is different because it stands out. And they'll immediately think, wow, that person has class. This person really has class. And remember, most of the people that run the companies are my age. 
so they appreciate the notes much more. I have gone overseas, so I've written lots and lots of notes over the years to people, and I go overseas, and people will show me my letter to them on their board stuck up there. And it's, it's, it's short. You know, I, have, I already have my, my, my return address. I already have who I am and everything. So all I have to do is scribble like three lines in big print, and it looks like it fills the car. And, and, but, but it means something to people. It means a lot to them to get this letter. And, and uh, um, I'm sure some people just toss it out, but, but others don't. And it means something. And you build up this network because networking is really important to have this network of people. And, and a lot of times you, you need advice, you need help on something, you have a network of people. And, and just by simply writing a letter can really propel your career. You want to learn to make friends. You work hard to build relationships with influential people in your profession. So one of the things that I used to do is, is uh, uh, when you're an assistant professor, you don't get invited to big meetings and get to give talks, but you can give a poster. So you give a, you, you give a poster. I remember I... I I went to a Gordon conference, and I was just giving a poster. I wasn't allowed to speak. You know, these were the kingpins. And, and uh, uh, people would come to see the poster, and I, and I, with as much enthusiasm as I could give, I'd talk about the poster. And if I saw somebody who was famous walking by, I'd go and I'd grab them by the arm, and I'd say, hey, I want to show you my work. I want to show you. And, and I'd bring them. And it's very hard for them to say no now. And so now I start you know, talking about my work. And I knew I had their attention when they would stop looking at the poster and they'd look down at my name tag. I wanted to see, who is this person? And I remember the first Gordon conference I ever went to, I gave a poster and they invited me to give a talk the next night in the Gordon conference. Because, you know, people saw me giving this poster session. And so you, you, you can really get hold of people by by uh, uh, working hard to build relationships with influential people in your profession. So you, you, through poster sessions, you invite famous people for talks. The first year that I was an assistant professor, so you know when you're a professor, you can invite other people to come and give talks at the university. And I invited three different professors to give talks at the university. And just so that you know the quality of the people that I was inviting, so I invited three different professors that, that year, and they were, they were professors and stuff. In subsequent years, years after that, each one of those three won a Nobel Prize in chemistry. Now, I like to think it's because I invited them. <laughs> but this shows you the types of people that I was, I was inviting, and I'd call them on the phone, I'd say, hey, could you come? And, and, and uh, it's hard for them to turn down a young assistant professor who's excited about their work and and they would come and they gave the talks and then they were my friends. And I would use them as reviewers on my papers. I would suggest them as reviewers. I would suggest them as reviewers on my proposals. And then I would call them up and say, I'm applying for such and such a fellowship or award or something. And I'd say, could you write a letter for me? Could you please? And it's hard for them to say no now. And so now I had these amazing people writing letters for me. And I invite key administrators for dinner, and I'd invite the, these people, these, these people that I'd, I'd invite to give talks. You don't invite them to a restaurant because restaurants are all the same after a while. I'd invite them to my home. I wanted them to see, have dinner in my home. I wanted them to see my wife. I wanted them to see my children. 
because I thought if they're going to be reviewing my proposals and papers, I wanted them to remember my children. <laughs> remember my children before you give me a negative review. Remember, I'm, I'm just, a, just a guy that needs help here. I was building relationships. And I'd invite key administrators. I invited the president of the university. I was a brand new assistant professor. I invited the president of the university and his wife over to dinner. And the first president, when I got there, he, he would not return the calls. His secretary would say, yeah, I'll tell him. About I never got a return call. Well, anyway, he was, he was indicted on some charges and had to do prison time and everything. This is what happens when you turn me down. <laughs> And so the next president came, and I invited him and his wife over for dinner. And I didn't tell him what happened to the last president. But he accepted, and he came over for dinner, and he had been a president in another university before that. And he came over, he said, you know, I've never been invited to dinner like this. I'm invited to people's homes, but it's always at some big gathering, some big Christmas party, just a quiet evening at home. And I just had two little girls at the time. And... and uh, um, my, my kids made friends with him. Now, that president of the university became a good friend of mine. At, he'd see me at big gatherings for the university. He'd see me in the audience. He'd always give me a thumbs up. We were friends. I got tenure after three years. You know? And, and uh, uh, the, you want to meet key people. I remember when I invited the president, my, my, my colleagues in the department, they found out. They said, you invited the president? Why'd you do that? Why don't you just start with the chair of the department and... Maybe go up to the dean. How can you just go invite the president over? But it makes a difference. Invite key program managers, corporate leaders to your home for dinner. I would invite the program managers who'd come through, and these are the people who run the programs at, at the Navy and at the NSF. I'd, I'd invite them over to dinner. That was back in the days when they were allowed to receive a dinner. Now you can't give them anything more than a cup of coffee because of new rules. But I used to... I used to just bring them over for dinner. I wanted them to see my family, my children. You use your family to your advantage in that, in that way. I'd befriend and show kindness to secretaries. The secretary can ruin your day. I mean, they, if you get on the wrong side of a secretary, they can make your life miserable. Custodians, maintenance workers. I always know the name of my custodian. Frank always knows the name of his custodians. My custodian is Maria. And I'll pray for her, find out what she's going through. You want to get the attention of somebody? You ask them, do you have children that I can pray for? You will stop them in their tracks. I used to do prison ministry. If I couldn't get it, a guy, I would say, do you have children I can pray for? They'd immediately stop and give me their attention. Everybody wants the best for their children. And, and I asked Maria about her sons, and, and, and uh, she told me what they were going through. I said, tell them to come in and see me. I want to talk to them. They need to... They need to go to college. And I met with each of her sons separately. They came to my home, and, and uh, she'll do anything for me. If my lights aren't working, she's not the person. I've had to, I just tell Maria, and she gets the light person to replace my lights. If something's not working in my office, Maria takes care of it. She cleans my office so well. She knows I like to keep the, the rest, I like the restrooms to be clean. So she cleans them. She, all the air fresheners on the second floor, Del Butcher, the... Maria puts all those in there. She buys them with her own money to keep the bathrooms clear. She put an air freshener, there's an electronic air freshener in my office. She buys this with her own money. And uh, she buys special oil to oil down the, 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 uh, 
the partitions between the stalls, the, the metal partitions. Those are all oil. Look at them. Maria buys all that just to keep those nice because she knows I like things clean. And uh, um, uh, I saw a plumber. He was under the sink one day and working. And I said, hey, how are you doing down there? We got to talking. Any time I need a plumbing job, I just call him. We are friends. You befriend people and you'll get things done. This is very important in your careers. Very important. Learn to make friends. You walk in honesty and proper speech. There's an admonition to change my words and my actions in the scriptures. It says, do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck and write them on a tablet of your heart. So you'll find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. And I remember going into meetings and being really, really uptight and, and high strung. And, and I was just, just, you know, a real go-getter when I was, I was younger and, and just, just, and, and God would remind me. You're going to speak with kindness and truth in this meeting. Speak with kindness. Kindness. Show kindness. And then it was very important that the words that I use with people, the words that I use, that I would use encouraging words with people. You do this and people will always remember you when you speak an encouraging word. Actions, particularly towards women, that could be misconstrued. When a woman walks into my office, the door stays open. The door stays open. My secretary knows that if a woman shuts the door, goes into my office, shuts the door behind her, she knows to go and open it. And usually I'm meeting her at the door because I'm going to open it. And it's not like I'm going to pounce on any woman that jumps into my office, that walks into my office. I just, I just don't want, the Bible says, be free of even the appearance of evil. And the door stays open. And I have, I have uh, video, there's always, always a, 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 um, cameras recording what goes on in the offices there. And there's a sign on the outer office door. I do this for protection. I just don't want any trouble. You say, this is going to be a bit extreme. I know a lot of men that have fallen into trouble, some by doing things and others just by accusations, that if they took some of these, the, 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 this advice, they would have saved themselves a lot of heartache and a lot of embarrassment. You watch what you do in life and you protect yourself because you, you have a reputation. The things that I do, so for example, software. I don't want software on my group's computers that we don't own. If we don't own it, if we haven't paid for it, if you need it for your research, I'll buy it. If we don't own it, I don't want it. I don't want music on my smartphone that I don't own. I want things that I don't own that don't belong to me. And, and uh, um, I remember my first computer I got when I was an assistant professor, it was a Mac SE. It was an amazing computer. It had one megabyte of RAM. It was amazing. One megabyte. And, and, uh, um, and then the next year, the computers were just rocketing in, in, in sophistication. The next year, I got a computer for a lab. It was a Mac SE 30. It had 30 megabytes of RAM. What are you going to do with 30 megabytes? And, and I bought a whole other set of software for that. And the next year, I bought another computer for the lab and a whole other set of software for that. And my colleagues said, why are you buying all that software? I said, because I called up Microsoft and I called up ChemDraw, and they both said one computer one set of software. In those days, it was one-to-one. One. It wasn't one-to-three. And computers didn't talk to each other back then, so the computers would never know. But I was going to walk honestly. And my colleague, I saw him roll his eyes like, you're crazy, buying all this software for these computers when you don't have to. 
at the end of the year, program managers in Washington would call me and they'd say, we have some extra funds, can you use it? And I credit Microsoft and their policies for bringing lots of money into my group. Because when you walk uprightly, God sees this. And your career will be blessed. You condemn yourself for you who judge and judge practice the same things. You know, so people judge other people all the time. But we have to look at our lives. Are we walking uprightly and honestly? Are we? Is there a prescription for thriving? And the Bible says yes. It says, How blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But in his law, but, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. There's an amazing prosperity, even in persecution. If you want to walk godly in Christ, you'll be persecuted. But even in persecution, there's prosperity. Because there's a promise, and the promise is coupled to something. There's many promises, there's many things, blessings that come upon us just because we are in Christ. Just because we're human beings. You don't have to be a Christian to have eyes that can see, to have ears that can hear, to have air to breathe. There's blessings that come. There's blessings that come to us because we're believers. There are blessings that come for reading the scriptures. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and in it, law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. There is a blessing that comes by reading and meditating on the Bible every day. Every day. The scripture puts it two ways. Every day and, and uh, day and night. And, and uh, uh, if you will read and meditate on your Bible every day, you will be blessed. When everything else is drying up, you'll be like a stream planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season. Its leaf is not going to wither, and in whatever you do, you're going to prosper. The Bible tells us this. It's a promise. And it tells us this in other places. Joshua 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, Psalm, Psalm 112, verse 1 and 2, Psalm 97, Psalm 119, verse 97 through 100, tells us these things over and over again. When I got saved, shortly after I got saved, I started reading the Scriptures every day from beginning to end. I start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and I pick up reading where I left off the day before. When I finish through Revelation chapter 22, I start again. I've been doing this for over 40 years. You can't tell me that there's not great blessing by being in the Scriptures every day. There's a scriptural promise on this. There's an excitement of being a scientist. I got, a, I got lots of stories, but this, this one's one of the greatest. And it was September 3rd, 1993. I had just gotten tenure, and, and I was an associate professor. And, uh, um, so, so, and, and then, then I, got, I was invited to Purdue to give a talk. I was staying right there in the Purdue Memorial Union, which is a hotel. It's run by the students in restaurant and hotel management. And that morning I was praying. And I always pray before I, I, I give a lecture. And, and I was praying and I, I was saying, Lord, I was just praying that, that God would really bless in that lecture. And then I started reading where I'd left off the night before. And Matthew 21, 21 says, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And I said, Lord, you're really raising my faith. 
you're raising my faith through this. So I said, Lord, I pray that the seminar that I give today would be the best seminar ever in that department. Now, that department was special because that's the department where I got my PhD. And I knew that my mentor was going to be right there in that department at that seminar. And he was a Japanese man. And the, the, way, the Japanese way of training people is you put people down. You put them down. You don't come in and say, you're wonderful. Boy, I really like you. You, know, you don't do that. They just don't do that. They, they, they put you down. It's like, what did I do? I mean, he just came in the lab. He started putting me down. They put you down, and they, they think the strong ones will rise up. And so whatever I did, he, he, whatever good result I brought him, he would always say, pretty good, for your level. He'd never give me above his waist level. <laughs> and, and I prayed, and I said, Lord, I pray it's going to be the best seminar. And I said, but the department's 100 years old. How do I know it's going to be the best? How do I know? So I said, Lord, if it's the best seminar ever in that department, I pray that my, my mentor would say that it was a super seminar, that he would say super. That's what I pray. It wasn't a no- word he normally used. He certainly didn't use it in the context of praising other people's work. So there he is. This was, this was in 1993. So he was just a regular guy. He wasn't a Nobel Prize winner at the time. And I gave that seminar, and he was on the front row, and he stood up when I was done, and, he, and I knew God had really blessed. He stood up, he raised his hand, he goes, Supa! Supa! <laughs> you see, God used that man to confirm to me that it was the best seminar ever in that department. Sitting behind him was another man, H.C. Brown, who had the Nobel already at the time. He was in his 80s. He was sitting right behind Professor Nagishi, and I stepped off the, the podium there and, uh, and uh, stepped off the stage, and I, I, he was sitting down, and I shook his hand while he was sitting down. I said, thank you for coming to the seminar today, because I had known him from the time I was a graduate student, because Nagishi had worked, actually worked for Brown, and so I, I knew H.C. Brown, and he said, he held on to my hand. He said, I want to tell you something. That was the best seminar I've ever seen in my life. And I said, that's very nice of you to say that. And he said to me, because he's a Nobel Prize winner, he said, I'm not saying it to be nice. I really mean it. You know, God is confirming again and again. What he does is amazing. When you walk with the Lord as a scientist and a believer, there's great blessing. There's applications in my career. There was Once I was upset with a colleague because he was telling students rumors about me, and it just really wasn't nice. And I... And that's because my career had just taken off and his career hadn't. And, and uh, um, he had always said that he would excel me in, in careers. And he was a year behind me. I don't know why. He, but anyway, when God was blessing me so much, he was saying these things about me. And I went to his office one day really upset to tell him to stop ta- saying bad things about me to students. And as I'm outside his office, he wasn't there. And God reminded me that I was memorizing the, Luke chapter 6, the entire chapter I was memorizing with my children at the time. It says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. And I'm standing outside his office and God is reminding me that if he doesn't like me and if he's going to mistreat me, I am now obliged to pray for him. You see that? I am commanded by Jesus to pray for the people that hate me. So I said, okay, I will do that. So every day, I, I always have break sometime during the day and I either go to the chapel and pray or I shut my door in my office and I pray. And 
I would go to this chapel. This was on the University of South Carolina campus, and this chapel was always empty, except when there were weddings and funerals. Other than that, it was empty. And I go right up there by the steps, and I just get on my knees and pray. And I said, every day, Lord, when I pray, I will pray for him. And I will pray God's blessing. Because he wasn't getting any grants. His career wasn't going anywhere. And I started praying for him. He started getting all these grants. And his career took off. And about a year and a half later, I continued to pray for him. He got an offer from another university, and he left. And I was delighted. And you see, God got a hold of my heart. He allows things in our lives that, that test us as believers. And then he got a hold of my life and the problem was dealt with so then he could clear the problem out. I mean, God just blessed so much. And I had invited that guy to church and things. He'd never come. He did nothing to do with me. But, uh, um, but anyway, God really blessed. There's the admonition to value my family. The Bible says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he'll not depart from it. I had daily times of, of, of meditation with my family. I'd wake up my kids at 5.30 in the morning, and we'd have, we'd have quiet time together. We'd, we'd read the Bible, and, and we'd pray for each other, and we'd memorize Scripture together. We, and and uh, we'd do this from 5.30 to 6, and I left my house at 6 in the morning, and I still do that every day. And, and I, I come into my office six days a week, and, and uh, I just have these daily times with my family. So in the midst of working hard, and I'd get home at 6 o'clock for dinner. So I was gone 12 hours, but I still had my family. I had a disciplined schedule of work, and I had time with my family. So I know what it's like to work, but I didn't lose my family in it. And my colleagues have even asked me. So Rick Smalley, who was a Nobel Prize winner here, used to ask me, he says, Jim, how do, you, how do you have this wife that loves you so much and your kids love you? And, and people see this and it impacts their lives. And he said, tell me, how, how do you do this? How do you get your group members to like you so much? And your wife loves you so much and your kids love you. How do you do this? You know, we can talk a lot about Jesus but until it starts impacting people in their lives, sometimes it doesn't have an effect. And it changed this man so much that after a few years, he himself became a believer in Christ. And uh, uh, it impacted him. In, in 2007, I was asked to write an article that was summarizing some things in my career. And I was writing about my, when I had been an assistant professor. And this is some of the things that I wrote. I wrote, I submitted 37 proposals in my first 36 months as a faculty member. And most of the, those as a single principal investigator since collaborative proposals were less common in those days. And that's when computers weren't very good. So, so what we would do is we would leave spaces between the paragraphs and then I'd draw the structures in ChemDraw, cut those out, and paste them in cut and paste had a real meaning at one point in the world. All right? You'd cut things out and you paste it. And remember, Frank, you probably pasted it in the... You still, you still know it. Yeah. Okay. I don't still do that. But, but um, it, it had a real meaning in those days. And so it was a lot of work. And then you'd run off like 12 or 20 copies of the proposal. Then you had to check every page to make sure the machine hadn't skipped a page. And then you'd mail them into the NSF. There was no mailing through a wire. You couldn't do that. This was a lot of work to write a proposal. 
Then it said, on the days of receiving the declination of funding letters from the NIH, sadness certainly followed. I would always call my wife, Shireen, because she was repeatedly there to reassure me of my self-worth. And my children were still there to call me daddy. Hence, I endeavored to dwell only momentarily on the harsh, sometimes even unnecessarily personal comments of the reviewers. My family saw me through. My wife saw me through. She stuck with me. Don't trash your family on the way to excel in your career. Don't trash your family. They can be your greatest asset. So, now I'm going to switch gears. I'm going to talk about my coming to faith. I have, I have Chinese subtitles for you. Okay? <laughs> and uh, this is my coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So, I was, I was a, a freshman in college. 18 years old, August of my freshman year, and I was doing laundry in the laundry room. And there was a guy in there doing laundry, and, and uh, we started talking. He lived on my floor, and I knew he was a football player because I had heard him talking about this with somebody else, and he was a quarterback on the Syracuse University football team. So I got to talking with him. I said, are you going to play professional football when you graduate? He says, oh, no, I'm not good enough for that. I said, what are you going to do? He said, oh, I want to go into lay ministry. I didn't know what lay ministry was. I'm, I'm from a Jewish home, a secular Jewish home. That means a non-religious Jewish home in New York City. And he said, he said well, it's sort of like a missionary. And I thought, missionary? Why would anyone want to be a missionary? I didn't even know missionaries existed anymore. I thought they all were killed. I thought they all died off. I said, why don't you just, just we got TV. It's 1977. We got TV. You can just beam it in there. You don't have to be a missionary. And he said, I'd like to give you an illustration of the gospel. And so th- there, was, there were no computers in those days. I had just come out of high school. I used a PDP-11. Anybody know what a PDP-11 is? Nobody knows. That's a computer. It ran on ticker tape. It was a straight, it was a, it was a paper that had little holes in it. That was your program. And you'd walk around with these rolls of paper and you feed them into the machine. And your code would run. Yeah. This is before you had punch cards. That's what I used, a PDP-11. And so there were no laptops in those days. There was no PowerPoint. He drew this out on paper. What I'm going to give you, he drew out on a piece of paper. So he drew these two cliffs and he had people on one side and God on the other. Then he separated it by sin. Sin separates us from God, he told me. And then he had me read this verse from the Bible. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I read that verse and I looked at him and I said, I'm not a sinner. I didn't sin. And he was, he was surprised. Because in my mind, and in the Jewish context, you have to do something to hurt somebody. You have to kill somebody, you rob a bank. And I told him, I never killed anybody, I never robbed a bank. How could I be a sinner? And then he turned to another verse. Of all verses in the Bible for him to turn to, he had me read this one. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Pow. This one got me. I was 18 years old, which explains it partially. And this was like my life. And I was addicted to pornography as well. From the age of 14, I was addicted to pornography. There, were no, there was no internet to look at pictures, but there were magazines. And I worked in a gas station just outside New York City 
on the highway and the businessmen, the, the salesmen would throw away their magazines on Friday night on the way home. And I collected them from the trash as I cleaned the parking lots. And I became addicted to pornography at a very young age. So when I read that verse, it really hit me that I was a sinner. It really hit me. Because in the typical Jewish context, it's not what you do in your mind. It's not what you do in your heart. It's what you do with your hands. Even to this day, I speak with my Jewish friends. They still don't get this thing. But then when I read this, I was, I was really hit. that it's, it's also what I do in my heart. And I know you have the same expression in Chinese. It's what in, in your, when you say it's in my heart, it's part of your mind and your, your psyche. And then he had me read this verse. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works that anyone may boast. So, um, I remember he drew these arrows that... Good gifts are not necessarily bad, but they'll never make their way across to God. God is perfect. There's this idea in people's minds, in everybody's mind, that if, if my good works somehow outweigh my bad works, then somehow I'll get to God. But the Bible says, no, that's not true. Whatever good works you do, they will never make you good enough to get to God. Because God demands perfection because He Himself is perfect. Your good works can't do it. For by grace you have been saved. I remember this young man in 1977 told me, grace is an undeserved gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is an amazing gift. If I hand you something, you receive the gift by accepting it with your hands. You receive the gift of of a meal tonight by eating it. This gift you receive by faith. By believing it, you receive the gift. It's an unusual gift. You receive the gift by faith. And it is a gift. God gives you this gift, this free gift. It is a gift of God. God hands you a gift that is received by faith. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I remember him telling me the wages of sin is death. This death is eternal separation, forever separated from God. But again, it says there's a free gift. It's a free gift. It's not like some gifts. You've got to be careful in the U.S. You'll, you'll get a call on the phone and they'll say, we give you this gift. It's a trip, free trip to Florida. Well, then you find out you got to buy your own plane ticket. They got you a motel room, but a prisoner of war wouldn't even stay in that room. And then you end up spending like $1,000 for this gift of being able to go to Florida. That's not the kind of gift we're talking about. This is a free gift. Everything is free. It's all been paid for. It's been paid for because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners. Sometimes people think, I'm not good enough to get saved. I'm just not good enough. Welcome. You are welcome. Because He died for sinners. If you have not sinned, if you're not convinced that you're a sinner, if you have not sinned, 
This salvation is not for you. Go get saved somewhere else. Jesus died for sinners. The Bible says that Jesus died for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly. If you're godly, this is not for you. Go get saved somewhere else. Go to the the godly people's club. This is for the ungodly. This is for the sinner. This is for people that understand that they are sinners. I'm amazed. I meet people today, and it's particularly the Chinese. I don't know why that is. Particularly the Chinese, where I have to convince them that they're sinners. They're like I was when I was 18. They don't even think they're sinners. No, that's not a sin. Doesn't that verse out of Matthew get you? If you look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery with her already in your heart? I mean, that, that what you do in your mind, you're not exempt from. He demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He took His Son and let Him die for us. Say you're walking, say, say, say you have a little niece or a little nephew or a daughter or a son and you're walking with them and they're three years old and you're holding their hand and you're walking down the road. Right? And you're your little, little child walking with you. Now a big dog, big dog comes running toward you, snarling and growling. What are you going to do? You're going to take this kid and go, here you go, take, leave me alone, just take the kid. No. You're going to pick up this kid, protect the child, and even allow yourself to be bitten up to protect the child. This is normal. You will allow yourself to be bitten to protect the child. God takes His own Son and allows Him to be offered up for you. That is the demonstration of His love. This is the most extreme love. This is what He demonstrates. He died for us in this sinful state. This is the key verse. This verse opens up everything. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It is very specific. The Bible is highly specific. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That means you will have this life with God and you will go to be with God. We have to confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead. When Jesus died on the cross, they took Him, they put Him in a grave. He stayed there for three days in the grave, dead. He came out of the grave He was seen by over 500 people at one time. It wasn't as if he just appeared to people through a mist or from behind a tree like, I think I saw him. No, it says that he came and he sat with them. He ate with them. He said to them, do you have something here to eat? Jesus asked them for something to eat because they thought they were seeing just some ghost, some spirit. He said, you got something to hear to eat? And you know what they did? They said, give him a piece of fish. He loves fish. Jesus was always having barbecues on the beach, fish, cooking fish. If it's Jesus, he'll eat the fish because Jesus loves fish. They gave him a piece of fish and he ate it. 
And it says, one guy even said, I'm not going to believe it until I stick my finger in the holes in his hands and stick my hand into the hole in his side, these piercings that he got when he was on the cross. When Jesus met him, you know what he said? He said, come here, do it. You know, the guy could stick his, his hands right inside Jesus. There is more written. There is more evidence for the resurrection more eyewitnesses, eyewitness evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than any other historical event of that era. But that's not the most amazing thing. Every week, I see somebody come to the Lord. Every week, I see somebody receive Jesus. I see it with my own eyes. And I only speak to educated people. I only speak to students who are undergraduates or graduate students. Or I speak to postdocs. Or I speak to professors. Or I speak to, to medical students, young physicians. That's all I speak to. So I'm always dealing with educated people. And every week I will see an educated person go from not believing in the resurrection, not believing that Jesus rose from the dead, to believing that Jesus rose from the dead in a period of a 10-minute conversation. Yeah. You know, resurrections are hard to believe. We don't have a whole lot of data points on resurrections. Has anyone ever seen a resurrection take place? We're not talking about near-death experiences where people, we're, we're talking a matter of minutes. Three days in the grave, crucified. And then three days in the grave. So we don't have a lot of data points on this. So it's hard to believe in a resurrection, right? Hard to believe in a resurrection. How is it? How is it? Then I can see educated people go from not believing in the resurrection to believing in the resurrection in a ten-minute conversation. It's not like they're uneducated and somehow I can, you know, sleight of hand, and somehow get a hold of their... They're naive minds. How can I do this? How can I, how can I see this happen? Well, what I think is that the truth of the resurrection has already been placed on your heart. It's already there, the truth of the resurrection. To take something so incredible and put that as an absolute requirement to be saved, Nobody could get saved unless God Himself put that truth already on your heart. That Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. The truth of Jesus Christ rising from the dead is already on your heart. And what you're doing is you're confessing that which you already know to be true. That's the only way I can understand how people believe this in a 10-minute conversation. I was having dinner with, with two professors. One was an assistant professor in physics. The other was the chair of the department, the chairperson of the department. The young one was from China. The older one was from Sri Lanka. The, 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 the professor was in his 50s, and the assistant professor was probably in her 30s. And she turned to me at dinner and she said, I read on your website that you're a Christian. I said, yeah, I am. Are you? She said, no. Then I looked at the other guy. I said, are you a Christian? He said, no. I said, do you mind if I tell you my story? He said, no, go ahead. These are two physics professors. I told them exactly the story that I just told you. 
And they went from not believing in the resurrection to believing in the resurrection over that conversation. 20 minutes later, after this conversation, they were both bowing their heads in prayer. These are two physics professors. Are you smarter than them? The truth of the resurrection is already on your heart. Today, today is your day to receive the Lord. Today is your day to receive the Lord. Nine years ago, I gave this message. Who was in the audience that day? These two guys got saved that day, nine years ago. Are you thankful you got saved that day? For sure. Are you thankful you got Absolutely. They got changed that day, that very day. Today is your day. If you have not received the Lord, today is your day. The Bible says, behold, now is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. You don't say, oh, I'm going to go home and think about this. The Bible says, I made haste and I did not delay to keep your commandments. You do it immediately. Do it immediately. You do this. The night of November 7th, 1977, I was all alone in that room. That was my dormitory room, Syracuse University. That was my room right there, room 1812. I was all alone. He told me this in August, told me this story in August. Now it's November. I was all alone in that room, and I carried that burden of sin. I knew I was a sinner addicted to pornography. I was all alone in my room. And I got on my knees and I said, Lord, forgive me because I'm a sinner and come into my life. And all of a sudden, I felt this burden of sin start to lift from me and the forgiveness of God came upon me. And then all of a sudden, somebody was standing in my room. The door hadn't opened. My roommate wasn't there. And I opened my eyes to see who was in my room. And I couldn't see anybody. But the presence of Jesus was right in front of me. And he was just extending love to me and forgiveness, and compassion. And I just started weeping like a baby. Just weeping. Just like a baby. And the kindness of God through Jesus Christ was showering in upon me, forgiving me that day when I prayed that prayer. I was a Jewish kid from New York City. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know who to tell. I didn't tell anybody. What am I going to say? I didn't even really understand what what just happened to me. I knew I was different. From that day, I started thinking a lot about God. What would God think of my actions? I started opening up a Bible because that guy who had shared with me gave me a little green Gideon's Bible that they used to hand out on college campuses in those days. And and, uh, um, it started all of a sudden making sense. The Bible never made sense to me before. And then that guy who had shared with me saw me walking on the floor a couple weeks later. He lived on the same floor. And he asked me, he says, Jim, did you receive Jesus in your heart? I said, I think I have. Why do you ask? He said, you haven't stopped smiling for weeks. You're different. Something happened to me that day. There was a new joy. And I asked him, how can I keep this joy? And he said to me, you read your Bible every day and you will maintain this joy. You don't, you won't. He said, I've talked to people who've fallen away, and I asked them, were you reading your Bible every day? They said, no. I asked, the pe- I asked people who always are walking with the Lord, do you read your Bible every day? They say, yes. 
So shortly after that, I picked up that practice of reading the Bible. And so for over, over 40 years, I've read the Bible every day. Slow, pensive. I don't try to complete it in a year. I'll just spend a, sometimes a week just in one portion because I feel God speaking to me. And when I've got that saturated, I move on. I just want the Lord to speak to me. Lord, speak to me today from this passage. That's what meditation is. Speak to me from this passage. You start to read. And all of a sudden, your eyes will get drawn back to a verse. You say, Lord, speak to me. Speak to me. What is it through this verse? And he speaks to you for things for that day. I bring you back to this verse, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the, de- from the dead, you will be saved. Today is your day. If you have never prayed this prayer to give your life to the Lord, today is your day. I am going to pray this prayer right now. And I want you to repeat with me this prayer and invite Jesus into your life. And you will never be the same. You will never be the same. We're going to do exactly what the Bible says. We're going to pray this. And you invite Jesus in your life. And you will never be the same. And in a few years you will look back and you will say, For sure, absolutely, I am glad. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to share with these young people today. And I pray especially for the unbelievers who are here this day. That they would repeat after me in this prayer. Repeat after me. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving me of my sins. Forgive me because I am a sinner. I believe that Jesus is Lord and I believe that He's risen from the dead. Fill me with Your Holy Spirit. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for forgiving me. Amen. And now, Lord, I pray for the believers who are here. That you would take them and fill them to overflowing. That you will take some of the little lessons that they learned in building their career and propelling it. And take hold of that. And Lord, I pray, if they're not in that pattern of reading their Bibles every day, that from this day and this day, they would start reading their Bibles every day. And it would change their lives and they would understand your prosperity. Father, I commit them to you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.